Last week I interviewed Mike Enoch on Patriotic Weekly Review. It's a two hour long interview and you can still watch it, but I wanted to give a shortened and more digestible take on the demise of the National Justice Party. What went wrong behind the scenes, the way it was mishandled in public, and what I think the future holds for ethno-nationalists in the US. And before I get started, I want to point out that I take no pleasure whatsoever in making this video. It's no secret that I was a huge fan of the NJP, and that I always loved working with the leaders of the party. The NJP also seemed to have built a solid base, both online and as a real-world organisation, and I was surprised at how quickly things finally unravelled, and even more so that the leadership decided that the best course of action was ultimately to dissolve the group. Obviously, my hope is that in the future, something new will rise up and replace it, but more on that later. So, why am I making this video? Well, it's simple. When things like this happen, as difficult as they are at the time, once you get past the heartache and disappointment, a lot can be learned. So here are some of my thoughts. Oh, but one last thing. Before I get into this, I want to make it very clear. This isn't going to be filled with gossip, personal attacks, or me laying the blame at the feet of different people who were once part of the organisation. So if you came here looking for drama, well, you are going to leave disappointed. Anyway, here goes. I don't think it's a big secret, but the main schism within the NJP was between those who wanted everyone to be active in real-world politics and those who wanted to focus on streaming and online activity. As ridiculous as this sounds, that argument pulled the party in two opposing directions and tore it apart from the inside. Now it's fair to say that in any group or organisation there are different types of people who all want different things or who want to play different roles or who wish to have different levels of involvement in the group. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a good thing and that's why I believe that nationalist groups should put community building first thus ensuring those groups can be a home for a variety of people who all want to play their part in the movement. No pro-white group should put all their eggs in one basket and no group should relentlessly badger people to do things that they aren't ready to do or that make them feel uncomfortable. If people come to a group and want to socialise, let them. If young guys want to come to a group and get fit and train together, let them. If young people want to game together or discuss Warhammer, let them. If women come to a group and want to create a mother and baby group, let them. Let those who want to be artists produce art. Let those who want to make music do so. And let those who want to grow their own food and share their gardening tips get on with it. And of course, if people want to be activists, let them. And there's lots of different types of activism. Banner drops, protests, leafleting, litter picks and street stalls in town centres. Let people do what they want to do. Build a multifaceted organisation that is a home for a multitude of people who all want to play their part in the way they feel most comfortable. We should embrace activism, community building, socialising and legal advocacy. All of these things, and many more, should be important parts of a well-rounded and forward-thinking pro-white community. But some people don't want to do any of what I have just outlined. Some people don't want to be face-out, and some people can't be face-out. Some people will instead be donors, some will sit on the sidelines sharing content. 
But let these silent supporters do what they are comfortable with. And if one day they do wish to do more, help them to do it with a little gentle encouragement. This is how every professional party operates. They have voters who turn out and put a cross in a box once a year. They have supporters who might simply share an important social media post or give a small donation at election time. They have members who attend meetings and pay annual subscriptions to the party. They have activists who deliver leaflets and knock on doors. And they have officers and leaders who dedicate their lives to running the party. But you know what these professional parties don't do? They don't scream abuse at their armchair supporters and donors for not delivering a few hundred leaflets. They don't insult those who just turn up to the big conferences or the Christmas gatherings. They don't berate their silent supporters for not doing enough. Because these professional organisations realise that such actions would drive off their soft support. But there are poisonous individuals within nationalist politics who simply can't stand a word of what I have just said. These individuals make demands that things must be done their way. This means if you aren't doing the activism, and equally if you are not doing the activism exactly how they want it done, you are a problem and you must either be demeaned or berated until you fall into line or you must be forced out of the organisation altogether. This means that those who just want to come to the big rallies or the socials get insulted and attacked. And those who do want to do activism, but maybe want to do it a slightly different way, well, they will be demeaned too. And those who like to sit online or don't want to be face out, they get called names and insulted. Whereas the gentle encouragement I spoke of earlier may indeed get more people to do more, Berating and abusing people rarely ever does, especially when the people being berated and abused are volunteers. This berating of people doesn't turn them into super activists, it drives them off. And the people being driven off are often the donors and the people who support and share online content. These are the very people who both fund and promote the organisation to others. And once these people are driven off, the consequences are clear for all to see. The individuals who are so desperate to turn the organisation into an activist-based group end up forcing everyone out who doesn't fit their narrow definition of what a nationalist should be. And instead of building a wider base of activists, they create division and the organisation becomes toxic, leading to an us-and-them mentality growing within the group. Soon, the enemy faction is no longer the far left, the establishment or external political adversaries. But in fact, the enemy faction ends up being other nationalists within the group who won't bow to the ever-increasing demands of more activism. Crucially though, this drive to turn everyone into a super-activist doesn't just force people out, but it actually turns former friends into enemies. This means that not only is your group smaller, but your group now has more people actively working to undermine it and willing it to fail. This sucks the life out of any group or party and turns it into a soulless husk that exists only for a very narrow type of activism. Social events die, women are put off, and an incredibly high barrier to entry is erected, meaning that recruitment dries up rapidly. What's more, the organisation spends increasing amounts of time fighting people who were once part of its support base. 
It is far better to welcome people in, make them feel comfortable, and let enthusiastic individuals who have certain skills or interests pour their time and energy into something they enjoy and that they want to sink their teeth into. Don't drive away enthusiastic people by forcing them to do something that they either don't want to do or are not ready to do. New people should be embraced, nurtured and encouraged to bring something to the table that they are enthusiastic about. These people should not be belittled or driven off. Now something else I have observed is that as an organisation starts to move into real world politics, another cry that is often heard is that the internet is pointless and that streaming, online shows, memes, light-hearted content and any form of online frivolity should be damned. It should be real life politics or nothing. This is one giant heap of horse manure. Often those who parrot this nonsense will say something as foolish as, well, you don't see the Labour Party leadership streaming for hours, do you? This is an utterly brain-dead argument. Of course you don't see mainstream politicians streaming. That's because the mainstream parties all have at least one major national newspaper that supports them. These papers pump out the mainstream party's propaganda on an industrial level each and every day. These mainstream politicians also happen to be invited on television and radio shows, and they all have giant social media reaches and are pushed to the top of the algorithms thanks to their huge advertising budgets. If, like the Conservative Party, we had a newspaper like the Daily Mail that supported us, pumping out propaganda week in, week out, and we were invited on every political talk show that took place, we might not need our weekly streams. But we don't have that door into the mainstream media. So we use the media we can use. And to cut off the media we can use, and the support and reach that media grants us, in favour of punting out a few handfuls of leaflets, is, quite frankly, insane. Another argument that is usually parroted by the let's bin the internet crowd is always that there should be no fun allowed. There will always be someone in the comment sections voicing their disgust under more light-hearted content. They usually say something like, you're not serious people, our folk are under attack and you are reviewing a movie. Yes, we do review movies and we produce a range of other light-hearted content and memes. This is for two very good reasons. The first is that being involved in the nationalist movement can be tiring and depressing. An endless stream of bad news stories, mixed with the constant talk of our impending demise, can crush the morale of even the most ardent nationalist. Having one stream every week that is more light-hearted raises people's spirits. It's important to be able to have fun. The second reason is just as important, if not more so. One of the main reasons people get involved in our cause is because they start to wake up to what is going on because their favourite movie, TV show, computer game or comic has been given a diverse and progressive makeover. Millions of people watch videos on YouTube that push back against what is known as woke media. Why shouldn't we be in on that? Why shouldn't we be part of that culture war? Why shouldn't we attempt to reach those people who are starting to question the narrative inserted in mainstream shows and films and introduce them to our community? 
I mean, we are the only ones who actually explain why the culture war is taking place and what the end goal of this culture war really is. Surely that's important. The culture war has woken up millions of people all over the Western world. People who come to us to hear our talking points because their favourite media was ruined by anti-white themes are people we should embrace and people we should try to win over. These are our potential supporters, members and activists. Those who wish to cut us off from the internet and turn our organisations into starchy and dry real-world micro-parties that only communicate via leaflet will, if they get their way, ghettoise us further, reduce our reach and cut off a stream of people who are becoming ever more open to our message. But there is a flip side to this argument, which is equally toxic. The flip side to everything I have just said is the claim made by some people that any real-life organisation is pointless. They say that real-world organisations put people at risk and that we should confine ourselves to spreading the message online and producing entertaining takes on the latest news stories. These people tell us we can't win, that the fight is lost and we should just cheer and commentate from the sidelines, chronicling the downfall of the West to the same small online group week in, week out, and hoping in vain that some billionaire celebrity will watch our videos, adopt our talking points, and win the fight for us as we sit on our sofas watching streams. This is just as flawed an argument as the opposing argument that I outlined earlier. Whilst I've clearly stated why we need to be online, I can't stress enough that we also need real-world activity. We need our own real-world structures, communities, and face-out men and women who can organise, protest, and commit to real-world politics. And this real-world activity should work hand-in-hand -hand with online promotional material, shows, and informational videos. The internet is great, but we can be deplatformed, we can be shadow banned, and entire sites can disappear overnight, destroying years of content and shattering online support bases. Online communities can be wiped out in seconds, but that's not something that can happen to real-world communities, where everyone knows each other and have real meaningful bonds. For our movement to grow into something that can attain real power, and halt our demographic demise. The simple fact is, we have to transition away from just being a loose collective of anonymous online content producers and consumers. The only way to affect actual change over the way our lives are governed is by attaining and holding power in the real world. That is a simple truth, and the NJP did a great job of organising protests, rallies, and other forms of real-world activity. What's more, the very real reality of the situation in the West is that many white people will end up being a minority in their own homelands. This will be a grim situation, and those who are not part of a strong real-world white community will face the prospect of being an isolated and atomized individual in a hostile and anti-white world. Real-world successes that have changed people's lives in a meaningful way do happen, and the more we engage in the real world, the more success stories we will see. Just look at Arania, an independent white state in South Africa, a place for Afrikaners, 
built by Afrikaners. This can't be achieved online or simply by sharing memes and liking content. Real-world activity matters and the online community must assist the push for real-world change. And the NJP was the real-world organisation that grew from TRS, a wonderful online community. But in the end, those who wanted only the NJP and only real-life work, and those who yearned for the good old days of 2016, Trump, Brexit and endless online hot takes, well, instead of working together towards something better, those two factions tore strips off each other, pulled in opposite directions and tore the movement apart. What started off as an organisation full of life that brought people together, inspired hope and held epic mass meetings was soon an organisation where entire state groups were being forced out because they wouldn't do things the right way. And soon, because things weren't moving quickly enough, friction grew between different groups who wanted to do different things with their activism and advocacy. And as more people became alienated from the group, as content creators and activism-only types clashed, as more people walked away and internal drama grew, this damaged both the NJP and TRS, harming not only the largest ethno-nationalist organisation in the US, but also damaging one of the largest dissident right platforms in the world. And in the end, the NJP ripped itself to pieces. But what makes all this so much worse is the fact that some of the leading voices in the NJP chose to play all of this out in public, turning what was a heartbreaking disaster for the movement into a humiliating spectacle of internet drama. And I have to stress, this is not how men should deal with issues. Going to the internet to share drama, gossip or to score points is pathetic. Apps like Telegram have become toxic cesspits where anonymous trolls and former leading members of the organisation have flocked to feed on the freshly deceased corpse of the NJP. And I am sure that the enemies of nationalism are loving it. I can't stress this enough. If our movement is ever going to mature into something that can affect real change, we need to be respectful of those who come into our movement. We need to nurture new recruits. We need to balance both online and real-world activity. And we need to get rid of the drama and act like men. For my money, the NJP had three of the most talented men present in today's nationalist movement. Mike Enoch, Eric Stryker and Warren Balog. These guys are titans of the movement and some of the finest nationalists I have ever had the pleasure of working with. Mike is possibly the best in the world when it comes to debating and presenting insightful political takes. Stryker is the best when it comes to deep dives and well put together and highly researched reports. And Warren, well, he is one of the most powerful and inspirational speakers I have ever had the privilege of hearing. And he is the perfect face for the movement. He could be a senator or even a president. He is clean cut, has a beautiful wife and a lovely family. He is a living, breathing avatar for nationalist ideology. And what makes it even more sad is that they couldn't all keep it together and use their talents to keep the organisation afloat. 
I hope to continue working with all three of them, and I hope that one day they will all work together again. And I don't blame any of them for what happened to the NJP. They are all brilliant men who poured their best into this movement. But working within this movement is hard, it is stressful, and I don't think many people realise how difficult it is to manage a group like the NJP. The pressure involved is incredible. So, is it all doom and gloom? Absolutely not. Despite everything I have just said, I think the demise of the NJP was a lot swifter and cleaner than the demise of either the National Front or the BNP here in the UK. I think wrapping it up and drawing a line under it may have been a better strategy than letting it shamble on in a zombie-like state. What's more, despite the fallouts, it didn't end up with someone running off with hundreds of thousands of dollars, or like we witnessed in the UK, the NJP didn't run up ridiculous debts and effectively bankrupt the movement. Also, none of the main players in this fallout have gone to the ADL, the FBI, or the media. This means that those who were active in the NJP shouldn't despair. I believe that several of the main players will be able to bury the hatchet and one day work together again, learning from these mistakes and being stronger for it. What's more, local NJP groups can continue their activism and social events. That's the beauty of real-world activity. You can build genuine bonds that last. These are real friendships and represent real camaraderie, something that can't be replicated online. In my 23 years in the cause, I have seen organisations come and go, and when they go, it seems pretty dispiriting. But as the sun always sets in the evening, you can be sure it will rise again in the morning, and just as the sun eventually always comes up, a new movement will rise in the US and something will replace the NJP. Just don't lose faith. If you were part of the NJP, stay in touch with those you met and hold dear. Keep supporting those who continue to spread the word, either online or in the real world. And don't give up on this fight. As I said in my recent conference speech, we are engaged in an eternal struggle. And inevitably, there will be many ups and downs. And no man should ever expect to go through life without experiencing any downs. But more so, the measure of a man is not that he doesn't experience the downs, but is in fact how he deals with the downs, the knocks and the lows, and whether he can learn from them and emerge the other side wiser, stronger, and with a more nuanced outlook on both the struggle and on life itself. There will be a successor to the NJP, and if that successor organisation learns from the mistakes that brought down the NJP, then all of this is not in vain. It's just another chapter in the history of our fight against a system that wants to erase us. And that's why there must be a successor to the NJP. Because this isn't like any other political movement. This is a movement for our very survival. And that's why this is an eternal struggle. It's why we can never give in, no matter how bad things may feel right now. I want to thank everyone who played a part in making the NJP what it was, and I want to end today by focusing on the positives that the party brought to those involved. The mass meetings, the friendships, the activism, and the amazing speeches, reports, and online content that inspired so many. 
There was so much right with the NJP, and let's never forget that. It's easy to focus on what went wrong, but let's not lose sight of the good. Because not only must we learn from the mistakes, but we must also never forget what was achieved and what those who put in so much time and effort got right. If we do all that, then what comes in the future has a healthy prospect of bringing all the positives that the NJP embodied with none of the negatives that brought it down. Thanks for listening. This was a little longer than my usual content, but if you stuck around to the end, I hope you enjoyed it.